All right, our scripture this morning comes from Matthew 26, 17 through 30. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. And Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The word of God. For centuries, followers of Jesus have uh, gathered together in communities and partaken in uh, communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or whatever you're Uh, used to calling it, and for the first, uh, really, centuries uh, of uh, Christian gatherings, this this meal that is in front of me, in front of you, uh, this was the focal point of the entire gathering. Uh, That actually kind of shifted in the Protestant Reformation about 500 years ago. Uh, There was this uh, notion, and it was rightfully so, that the people of God needed instruction from Scripture, uh, now think about their time period, or about 500 years ago, and, and people are living in a mostly illiterate culture, meaning they can't read, they can't write, um, and the, the Bible is just starting to be translated into the languages that they were speaking in the first place, right? So, so there was a shift in church services about that time uh, where actually the pulpit, which used to be just way over there, and in some traditional sanctuaries still kind of is, Uh, actually got moved to like the center. And the whole service seemed to revolve around uh, opening God's word and reading it publicly. And somebody um, kind of standing where I'm standing, uh, explaining to God's people what is going on in scripture. And now that's a really good thing, right? But think about that. For for 1,500 years, that wasn't the focal point of the gathering. The focal point of the gathering was for God's people to get together uh, and to celebrate communion together, to get together around uh, a table, to eat, to participate in something that Jesus called them to, 
Um, and in some church traditions, that still actually seems to be kind of the focus of, uh, of church gatherings. But I would say for most Protestant traditions, certainly most evangelical traditions, if you were to ask the everyday person, what's the main focal point of church, they might say, I like the music, but the, the reason we gather is, is kind of the sermon time. And you can tell that because it takes up a good chunk of the time, right? And you're in for a treat. No. <laughs> it takes up a good chunk of the time. And, and I grew up uh, in a church just like that. I grew up in a, in a Lutheran church in the Midwest. And in that church, in that time, there was a specific Sunday as you were growing up that you took your first communion. Uh, it, was a, it was, I don't know, middle of elementary school. I'm not sure, maybe third grade. In all the third graders, that Sunday, it would be the first time that, that they actually like, took the elements when they took communion. They would come forward before that, but the pastor would kind of just pray over them, and, and then they would go back to their seats. And, and in third grade, you got to do the real thing. So I don't know about you. I don't know if you remember the first time you took communion. Maybe you were an adult and you remember it clearly. But I remember my first time. And, and the reason being is because uh, some of it shifted over time, but... Uh, to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit, this is actually grape juice up here. <laughs> it's actually great. The reason being is a really good reason. We want to be sensitive to people that might uh, struggle with addiction or have that in currently or kind of in their own, in their own past. So uh, many churches have kind of shifted to grape juice over the years. But the church I grew up in, it was not grape juice. That was up front. And, and as a third grader, uh, this was my first taste of wine uh, in a church setting. Do you believe it or not? If you grew up Baptist, you're shocked. Uh, <laughs> in a church. And, and it's like there's a warning for it for all these little third graders. They get taught about what communion's about, and then it's always like, and don't make a face when you drink the wine. And you come forward, and I remember clear as day, there was like a little kneeler thing, and, and the kid is there, and the family who's with can gather around, and and somebody's got like a disposable camera and they're like ready to snap some photos. And, and you take communion for the first time and every single kid is just like... <laughs> There's this like harshness to communion. No, it's just the harshness of, of what it was. But I got me like thinking about it this week because I, I think there's, there's a sense that over time, over time, like what we do here with the communion meal becomes so normal to us. It becomes such a, a common practice that I think we kind of, or at least I can speak for me, I, I kind of lose some of the connection of what's actually going on biblically, what's going on spiritually, what, what this meal uh, really is. And, and we're in this sermon series now called The Jesus Way. It leads all the way up uh, to Easter, and today is called The Way of the Table. Um, and it's pretty obvious what table uh, I'm talking about when naming it. And, and there's this part uh, in Scripture, and it's in the, all four of the Gospels, where Jesus pulls his disciples to him, and he does the first communion with them, instructs them to continue doing this uh, as they gather. Uh, but, but I feel like there is this disconnect. You know, why... Why a meal? You ever thought about that? Why, why is that the way he wants to meet them? Why is that the way he wants to, to communicate these deep theological meetings of, of his body 
broken for them and his blood sp- spilt for them and he's going to do a meal with them. And, and then instruct them to keep eating, to keep having this meal for years after years, centuries after centuries as God's people gather that they're to keep eating this meal. And it does kind of seem odd, right? We don't have that regularly in our culture. I mean, we have values of of eating together, and, and there's studies that show that families that eat together, you know, have, have long uh, success, you know, kids' grades go up, these kind of things, if families just sit down and have dinner together. But, but is that really all that God's talking about? He just wants people, God's people to, to gather together uh, to take this uh, meal. And Theologically speaking, uh, communion is called a sacrament in the church. Uh, so what a sacrament is, just real briefly, in the Protestant church, which, which we're a part of, uh, there's two sacraments. There's communion and baptism. And these are specific things that Jesus called us to do uh, in the Bible. And he said, when you do this, I will be with you. That's actually where we get the word communion from. It's not solely that you're eating this together in a community. It's actually that Jesus said he'd do this with you. That Jesus said he would be there, that you will be uh, in union with him when you take this meal. And as the logic continues, Jesus promises that that's the case. And I don't know about you, but I believe that we can believe Jesus' promises. And therefore, we can conclude that when we come forward and when we do take this meal, that he will meet us in a special way. And we can, we can lean on that. And I've heard beautiful testimonies of people who have felt so far from God, have felt that they can't accept God's love, that felt like they can't get close to him. And, and somehow through a meal of communion, there's just this breakthrough where all of a sudden they know that they know that they know that God was close to them. And they know that forgiveness and it floods through them. And, and it can be this beautiful time, but, but it still brings up the question, why a meal? Why is this the way uh, that, that we gather together, that we're called to gather together? And interestingly enough, I'm, I'm just going to kind of back up um, in theology, back up in church history, I actually start towards the beginning of Scripture, so hang with me. Uh, and there's a really good reason why this is a meal. And it really stands out when you start to read the Bible in, in big chunks, uh, but I think we miss it in the church. So uh, this might be really interesting to you. This might be the first time you've ever heard, like, the, I don't know, 35,000-foot level of, like, why communion is happening. Uh, but I think, it's, I think it's really important. So uh, the very first few pages of the Bible, uh, we open our Bible, humanity is already there, right? They've been created, they're in the Garden of Eden, and they're actually invited to a meal. Almost immediately, they're invited to a meal. They're appointed in the Garden uh, to be God's representatives, to serve alongside him, uh, to use their creative power, to use their own imagination, and, and to spread order and to spread beauty into the world. God's going to work through them uh, to do something special. And then we get to Genesis chapter 1, uh, 26 through 28. It says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals 
and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every living creature that moves along the ground. So God has created them for a purpose, and he's going to work alongside them, and, and it's going to be beautiful, and it takes a quick left turn uh, as we continue reading, but, but notice the purpose here. God is going to rule this, this creation alongside humanity, alongside his crowning achievement. And, and here in the garden, there's trees that are loaded with fruit, and they're good for eating, and they're good for cultivating. And growing at the center of the garden are two special trees. There's two trees that are there. This is Genesis 2, verse 9. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the tree of life, anyone who would eat from it would be transformed and they would have eternal life. They would have eternal life with God. But there's a second tree, right? There's a second tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Through this whole process, humanity is invited to trust and to participate in the life of God. Uh, into this eternal life. They're allowed to eat from all the trees except for one. And I think we miss that part. They're only not allowed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But at this point, they're allowed to eat from the tree of life. They're allowed to eat from the tree of life. It's just not the, the knowledge of good and evil. And, and of course, as we continue to read, I mean, if that was the end of the story, we'd be like, okay, close it. Good. And that's why we live in a perfect world, everyone. Moving on. <laughs> right? But the story continues. That humanity uh, actually seeks after their own wisdom. They seek after their own knowledge. They actually seek in a way to be, to be gods of their own lives. And they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and as this all unfolds and as uh, God reacts to what has happened, one of the things that is said is they have to be removed from the garden. And the reason being is because they have to be removed from this tree of life. Now that they're living this way, they can't live forever, is the logic that's going on. And they get removed from the garden, and there's, there's angelic guards that are put in place to hold them out of it. And that's really the story of the rest of the Bible, is how are we, as humans, supposed to get back to this place? How are we supposed to get back to this good relationship with God? How are we supposed to get back to this tree of life, to this tree that, that can give us everlasting life, that we can eat from that fruit once again? And as the story goes on, we continue to hear of more and more meals, more and more uh, times where God is, is inviting his people into a meal. After God rescues the Israelites from Egypt, he invites them to become a kingdom of priests 
into the world, to live and to serve as his partners. Again, in this world that is now hurting, in this world that is now broken. Exodus 19.6 For you will be, for me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But this partnership is going to force them to make a choice. Once again, they have to decide if they're going to let God define goodness in life or if they're going to define the goodness in life in their own terms. What tree are they going to seek after? What meal are they going to eat? How is it going to work out? And and interestingly enough, God gives to them, uh, symbolically, he gives to them these cycles of feasts that they do throughout the year. They gather together and they eat certain meals at certain times. It's right in in their scriptures. It's right in the Bible that they are to eat in these ways. And and there's really two reasons uh, that they do it. The first is that it's going to form them as a people that they are regularly participating in praise, that they're regularly participating in thanksgiving, in remembrance, in repentance, in turning back to God. It's, it's these cycles of life that continue to bring God's people right to the forefront of, of who he is. And as they continue to do this, as they continue to eat uh, these feasts, they actually become collectively as a whole Uh, more grateful people, people who are more reliant on God, people that believe in God more and more through generations after generations of them living in this way, people who trust in God's goodness and God's life. The second reason is that these meals are to remind them of God's covenant with them, that God made promises to them as a people. So they're going to eat these meals and be reminded Uh, Not just who their God is, but who they are. How their God sees them. How their God wants to be in relationship with them. That God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Now one of the beautiful parts about these meals is that they engage the whole person. They engage all of, of who you are. They engage your taste, their sound, their smells, their touch their sight. It feels so different than kind of this trite belief that says, think the right things, and and that's it, then you're in. Just believe the right things. And I'm not saying that that's wrong, but you can feel a difference, right? There's a difference between this meal where it's, where it's experience all of this. Come alongside me. I will be with you in this moment. I will be with you in the taste and the smells and the sounds and the, and the touch and the sight and all of who you are in your heart, in your soul, in your mind. Matthew twenty-two thirty-six 36 through 40. They're asking Jesus and they said, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That means all of you. Love the Lord your God with all your, with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Heart, soul, and mind. 
But despite all of this, despite all of these meals, despite all of these reminders, as we continue to read in Scripture, we see that the Israelite people are unfaithful to God. That they continue to seek after the wrong tree. That they continue to seek after this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That they, that they continually turn from him. That they turn to false gods. That they bow down uh, to these other gods and worship them. And they choose false trees that promise life and, and actually lead to destruction. And death. And during this time, Israelites' prophets came before them and they spoke of a future day where God would restore this broken covenant with God's people. And interestingly enough, they bring up meals quite a bit. They bring up this, how this new community is going to eat with God in a new way. How God is going to meet them in in these, these meals, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. Over and over again, the prophets in the Old Testament call this new promise, this new relationship that God is going to have with his people, they actually call it a new covenant. It's not a mistake that Jesus uses the same words when he speaks about communion. They say that a new covenant is coming, a new promise, a new relationship between God and God's people. And that one day, that God would gather the nations to himself and this promise would be fulfilled. And notice, it's not because of who they are. It's because of who God is. This whole process, the, the people continue to fail over and over and over again. You don't have to read very far into the Bible before you realize that. And, and when you first start reading the Bible, you might realize that, and then you start thinking, who are these terrible people in the Bible? And that's where the Bible has this beautiful way of, of taking your own lens that you're looking at it with and flipping it around and turning it into a mirror. And then you realize who these terrible people are, right? <laughs> that, that continue to say, I will follow after you, God. And then, and then in the very next breath, struggle with, with any number of things. And then, and then in a short period of time, find themselves feeling like they're far away from God. Like they can't connect with God anymore. How do I get back into this relationship with God? The good thing is the Bible is full of those people. The hard thing for us is so, so is the, 
church. <laughs> so, so, our, so is our own house. Right? So, so are we. This is our story. This is so simple. It, it actually uh, is almost written in a way that it's kind of like as soon as you start to judge them, then all of a sudden the mirror turns on, right? And then you're like, oh, wait. Who, who are these Israelites that they would have this God and he has promised them these amazing things? And he says, not only have I promised, I'm going to show you tangible examples of my love and, and I'm going to walk alongside and you're going to see what I do in the world. And then the next breath they turn away from it. Who are these people? Right? And then the mirror turns on. And then we're like, I know exactly who these people are. <laughs> these people are me. Again, the prophets keep bringing up these, these meals. This is from Isaiah now. Uh, just listen to these words. This is Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats in the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, a sheet that covers all nations, and he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, he will say, surely, this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is our Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. And this doesn't just stop with the prophets. As we continue to read, we get into the New Testament, and we get into the words of Jesus, and Jesus brings up meals a lot. Not just here at the end of the Gospels, but all throughout the Gospels. There's, there's banquets and there's food and there's meals. And we see one of them really clearly that it's about, actually about the time of Passover once again. Jesus has gathered this crowd and he miraculously feeds them. Thousands of them. He feeds them and the, and the food continues to pass and and what do the people say? They respond that they want more bread. Which I think is always kind of fun. Give us more bread, Jesus. And Jesus responds to them. And he says that the true bread that they will eat of is him. That the true bread that they will eat of is him, and that they will discover eternal life. This is in John 6. Later on, Jesus claimed to be the vine that brings God's life out into the world. He says that all of his disciples who abide in him, who remain in him, are like branches that are connected to the vine. In the evening before his death, Jesus observed another Passover meal, which was read for you earlier. At this meal, Jesus took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, 
and he distributed it to all of his disciples. And he took a cup and he gave thanks and he offered it to his disciples. And once again, he connects this bread with his body and this wine with his blood. And his disciples are invited to eat it and to drink it in remembrance of him. And you see where he's going with this, right? Jesus is this tree of life that they can now finally eat from. They couldn't get back into the garden, so God came to them. They couldn't do it on their own. They couldn't struggle enough. They couldn't, they couldn't get there, but that didn't make God quit. God came to them, and he brought the meal to each one of them. And the beautiful part is that it doesn't just stop with the disciples, right? They're told to continue this forward whenever you eat of this. And it continues forward to even today. This is the story that's going on when we eat communion. This is the story that's going on here. Jesus introduces what he's doing. He calls it a new covenant. What the, what the prophets were looking forward to has come in that meal. Luke twenty-two twenty, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And through this new covenant, eternal life can be found once again. But this time it's going to be through Jesus. And it actually continues. The story doesn't actually end there. The meals continue through the rest of Scripture. Later on, actually that very next day, Jesus was led to the top of a hill where Roman soldiers killed him on a different kind of tree, on a wooden cross. Actually, in Hebrew, it's the same word. Do you know that tree in wood is the same word? They don't have, like, we have two words, right? (laughs) We have, like, the tree while it's alive, and then we have the wood that we get from it. But but it's just, it's eights. It's just eights in Hebrew. And, And Jesus dies on a tree on entirely. They underestimated our Savior and what he was doing. They tried to take his life from him, but they didn't realize that he willingly gave it. They tried to end his life as as a rebel, as one who was causing problems all over the region. But instead, they took his life as a sacrificial lamb in order to cover the sins of the world. And rather than fighting, he goes through death. And as the story continues, he's resurrected three days later. And now Jesus presents even us with this new choice between life and death. A new tree of life that stands before each one of us. 
and we can eat, and we can participate, or we can choose the other tree. We can choose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or we can choose this tree of life and life eternal. We can drink from this fruit. Well, it will mean that we will humbly have to pass through death like Jesus and allow our old ways, our old human ways to die and to live a new life. It will mean, it will mean dying to this, this old tree that we've been pursuing and living in this new way, transformed into a new people, a people of beauty and, and truth and goodness that can bring this wholeness into the world, that can be these partners that God designed in the beginning of time to, to come alongside even God who, who desired not just to, to rule the world with an iron fist, but to do it alongside humanity, that we can be those people in the world. And in not very long, we'll be invited to participate in that same meal. This meal that represents this new way of living in the world. Jesus' followers are invited to draw near to him. To participate in this meal. Just like the ancient Israelites had their feasts and it touched all the senses, it touched all the, the human senses, we are called to taste and to see that the Lord is good. So this meal, this isn't something that, that we gather to do and that, that we just kind of do for Jesus or that we do as just like part of our faith. We, we actually do this uh, because of what he's done for us. Right, we do this because of who he is, how he is, how he is connected with us, that he has invited us to this meal, that he says when we take this that he will meet us here, that we can believe those promises. This actually becomes something that we do with Jesus. He didn't die again. Right? He dies on the cross and he's resurrected and he's still alive. That that's the message. He's at the right hand of the Father. And when we come and we take this meal, we're actually communing with Jesus. We're actually meeting him in this place. And, he, and not only uh, symbolically, but he says he will meet us. He promises that he will be here. So we participate alongside one another, but we also do that alongside Jesus himself in full communion with him. And even then, even then the story in scripture is not done. Because we're living in this time where Jesus has come, but, but Jesus has not come again. Right? It's what biblical scholars call the already but not yet. That's where you live. 
<laughs> You've seen a glimmer of what this is like, but it's not all come into, into focus yet. So our ongoing and our repeated participation in the Lord's Supper reminds us that there's a wonderful meal to come in the future. And that Jesus is even preparing that meal for us now. And that when he returns, he will gather his people from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue. And they will once again have access to the tree of life. Did you know it shows up again in the Bible? Not even just like metaphorically. Revelation 22. Verse 2. This is speaking of the new Jerusalem. What God is going to uh, make in the future. In the new Jerusalem. Again, Revelation 22. 2, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river. Stood the tree of life. Bearing twelve crops of fruit. And yielding its fruit in every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. He will bring us to this meal that he has prepared for us. And we will enjoy this this eternally life-giving meal in his very presence. So the Lord's Supper actually reminds us of two things. It reminds us of what Jesus has done for us and what is still being done for us. That the story is not done. That when you look around in your world and and you still see the the hurt, you still see the pain, you still see the difficulties, that, that God knows that. That the story is not complete. That this is leading somewhere. So this meal also reminds us of that. That our God is active, that our God is still working in this world, that we don't have to, we don't have to look around and be fearful of what's happening, that our God is moving. He already told you the end of the story. If this was like uh, a modern movie, it would be a huge spoiler. <laughs> right, right at the beginning, you're not even, you're not even done with it yet, and he tells you how it's going to end. But he tells you because there's hope in that. He tells you because that's, that's going to impact how you live the rest of your life. If you don't know the end of the story, you can live as, as hopeless people that, that look around, and, and actually it's how the Bible describes it. It says you would live like pagans live, is what the Scripture says. That, that they just seek after things of the world, and, and they hope that maybe God will bless them, or maybe their gods will bless them, but, but there's no guarantee. And instead, we're told the end of the story. We're told where this is going. We're told of one last meal that is to come. So the Lord's Supper reminds us of the life and the work of Jesus. And it marks us as people of the new covenant in this world. But in doing it, it also brings us to this place of anticipation for what God is going to do for this glorious feast that is to come. This meal actually serves as just a little taste of what is to come. It's like the appetizer of the appetizer of the appetizer. Right? It's just, just a little piece. That's why we don't give you a lot. 
right? It's just a little piece. <laughs> Someday you will feast, and it will be a much bigger table, I'm sure. <laughs> but there's just this, this taste and see that, that the Lord is good. Let, let this knowledge impact how you view the world around you, what's going on. So as we practice this new covenant meal, my prayer is that it stirs within us a hope for Jesus' return and a thankfulness for what he has done for each one of us.